Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tennis team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tennis offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. Capital Allocators is brought to you by SRS Aquium. Since 2007, SRS Aquium has been obsessed with a single purpose, to simplify the administration of M&A deals so that deal parties and their advisors can focus on bigger issues. SRS Aquium was the pioneer in professional shareholder representation, digital M&A payments, and online stockholder solicitation, and they continue to raise bars and set industry standards. Case in point, their new VDR, which is changing the way deal parties think about virtual data rooms. No more tracking down thumb drives or asking how the VDR bill got so high. SRS Aquium keeps deal documents securely stored on the cloud for as long as you want for one flat rate. And working with SRS Aquium means you get the simplicity and stability of a single best-in-class partner from the pitch book through the last dollar out. 50% of U.S. private equity firms and 40% of venture capital firms worldwide count on SRS Aquium to optimize their deal process. To learn more about how SRS Aquium is simply the smartest way to run a deal, head to srsaquium.com. That's S-R-S-A-C-Q-U-I-O-M dot com. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting CapitalAllocators.com. My guest on today's show is Barry Sternlicht, the chairman, CEO, and founder of Starwood Capital Group, a $95 billion real estate investment firm with 4,000 employees and 16 offices worldwide. Barry has invested nearly $200 billion across every major real estate asset class around the world. The list of related real estate companies he's created, results, and associated accolades are extensive and truly impressive. Our conversation covers Barry's beginnings as an entrepreneur and real estate investor with some great stories along the way. 
We then turn to the current opportunity set across real estate asset classes and geographies and close with his approach to managing his own capital through his family office, SPACs, and experience during the pandemic. Please enjoy my conversation with Barry Sternlicht. Barry, great to see you. Thanks for doing this. Thank you. Nice to be here. Why don't we start back at the beginning of your career? How about how you first got into real estate? I went to Brown University and coming out of Brown, I wanted to get a job in Wall Street, but I had no background in Wall Street. And so I became an arbitrage trader. First, I got a job with Buzal, and then I left that and became an arbitrage trader. And then I worked for Credit Suisse, and I kind of liked the markets. I got into business school, and I wasn't sure I was going to go because I was making decent money, and I was broke. <laughs> um, but I got online to buy my first lotto ticket, and I think it's the only lotto ticket I ever bought. And I said, what would I do if I won lottery? And I said, I'd go finish my education. So I only applied to two schools, Harvard and Stanford. I got into Harvard and got waitlisted at Stanford, and I decided to go. And then when I got out, I tried to get a job with Wall Street again. And I got offered a job in Goldman Sachs, this real estate group. I'm kind of a frustrated artist. I, I took art classes in high school. I went to Silvermine Guild for Artists. I painted. Real estate seemed like, okay. It was also the last great imperfect market. Things happen in the real estate market that don't happen in the securities market. People do deals because they have a bad tax situation or they don't want people to see what they screwed up. So they call you. And stuff happens even today that's almost inexplicable. People selling things perhaps off market because they don't want people to know about the trade. So I got an offer to go work at Goldman Sachs in the real estate group, or I got this offer from a group in Chicago. And I decided to venture to Chicago where I'd have more freedom. And they also had a lake. I grew up on water and they had that lake, you know, like Michigan. So it looked like I was near an ocean. So I felt okay about it. And everyone from Chicago seemed to like Chicago. So I, I enjoyed my time there. And so that was an auspicious time to get started in real estate. Oh, God, it was a terrible time to get started in real estate. <laughs> Let's say I graduated in 86. And by 1991, we had the failed SNL crisis. And real estate took a shellacking. And I, I kind of saw the handwriting on the wall. I could see what was going to happen. In those days, you had what we call inverted yields. You were, the cost of the property was... So you'd buy assets, let's say, at a 5% yield and finance at 7 and 8 And that seemed to make no sense to me. Like, why are we <laughs> buying things at 5s when you can buy corporate bonds at 9 I asked those questions of my then boss, and he said, you just don't understand. Real estate just doesn't work like that. You know, it's, it acts differently. And I'll, I'll never forget when the world did fall apart and the stock market for real estate crashed. I saw one of the dads of, this, of David Simon was in our offices crying because malls, everyone was recourse back then. And malls, which the institutions were buying at six yields, were financed with 9% debt. So without the capital markets open and people saying you can't pay your debt service, they became insolvent overnight. And there was a lot of grief. So that was when the company had to cut back, they let me go. And I was one of the top 10 partners and I was an acquisition guy. So I was kind of incredulous, but I was expensive. and The firm was going through a serious crisis. Even our firm had done recourse debt on some deals and they had to scramble to figure out either give the asset back or find ways to pay off the debt. So no, it was a terrible time and a really good time for me to start investing in real estate. So you're not that old. How'd you get started? Well, I, I met a fellow who I shared a beach house with in West Hampton <laughs> and he said he'd back me when he found out I was 31, 30 actually at the time. And then my old boss who felt bad about firing me gave me $2 million dollars. 
and then the Ziff brothers and also the Burden family, which are the Vanderbilts, they put up $10 million each. And that was our fund, $21 million. The thing is, you can't buy a lot for $21 million in real estate. So, But assets were so cheap. We bought our first deal was the Windmill Springs Apartments in Colorado Springs. We bought 513 apartments for $3 million. It was $15,000 apartment. This was from the government. The government formed this resolution trust corporation which had all the assets of the savings and loans that had gone under to sell so we would go to auctions in fields with pickup trucks and there'd be music playing between portfolios of assets they were selling <laughs> and i went to these auctions and i there was a multifamily in ocala and it came with a llama farm and a whole bunch of other <laughs> stuff so we'd buy buckets of stuff they were selling and we would show up with our 21 million dollars I went back to the families and said, we've already spent your 21, we need some more money. So they said, how much do you need? I said, at least 50. So they topped us off to $50 million. And then we were able to get a credit facility from Cargill. And we went on a buying binge. We bought 8,000 apartments in 18 months. And I sold them all to Sam Zell. And we tripled their money in 18 months. How do you think about selling at that point in time? One of the rules of real estate is when prices get to replacement cost, you should sell. Because when the prices get that high, new construction begins. And so they were in that case, we thought these assets, which were old, had risen so much in value. So what happened was the REIT industry was born back then. And the REIT industry was born not because people wanted to the good graces of these very rich real estate guys, it's because they were all on recourse debt and interest rates plummeted. And all of a sudden the dividend yield of an unleveraged real estate portfolio was higher than interest rates. So Sam Zell took public his apartments and got off mountains and mountains of recourse debt. And so the Simons took, went public with their holdings and everybody used the public markets to deleverage and get off those recourse guarantees they had. And so the REIT industry was born and then it sort of took off from there. It had been around, but it had never been legitimate and never been large enough to matter. Then all of a sudden it became the exit strategy for every real estate guy on earth because it, again, the dividends were lower than the cost of debt. So why was Sam willing to buy from you then? He needed girth. He needed a bigger company. He needed more units. We were actually owned more of the company than Sam did with our units because he was more leveraged than we were. We made our five-year plan in 18 months. So when I started my business, I said, okay, how, if, I, if I make $5 million over five years, I'd be delighted. And we made more than twice that in 18 months. So what did you do next? We were like, go fish. We went to see Westinghouse that was having a going out of business sale, Westinghouse Electric. And I said, do you have any apartments? They said, no. Do you have any land? They said, no. So what do you have? They said, we have these hotels. I said, interesting. Nobody wants to buy hotels. It was under contract to a different, it was a group called Davidson Hotels down in Memphis, Tennessee. I went to see the CEO and I said, you just have more fun with us than you will with that other buyer. And he actually agreed. <laughs> and... Uh, we wound up doing that deal with the early predecessors of Blackstone's real estate group. We split it because it was more bigger than we were. And uh, we made a lot of money. We did really well. But institutions were, it was an institutional asset class and you can buy them really well. And we called the business cycle right. And they were pretty good assets. How do you have the inflection in the hotel business? I know you went from buying a bunch of hotels to buying Weston, bigger and bigger assets. So we had been buying hotels and a couple of things happened. There was a company we bought, Davidson, was managing a bunch of their assets. So that was a public company called Hotel Investors Trust. And the symbol was HOT, H-O-T. And it was a, basically a bankrupt REIT. It had about 20 hotels. It had about $200 million of debt. I think it had an $8 million market cap. But it also had this thing called a paired share structure, 
where the management company was allowed to manage the assets of the REIT, which technically in all other hotel REITs, because REITs can only own passive income streams, is outside of the entity. This was in the entity, so the shareholders would own both the management company and the asset, and there'd be no conflict of interest between the two, because you own both of them. So we thought this was cool. So we bought the debt of that company. The 200 million we started buying, it was held by four different entities, we started buying it. We, we, we approached them and said, your debt isn't worth par. One by one, they all agreed, and we were able to buy the debt. And then I decided to take all a whole bunch of the real estate hotel assets that we bought and go public with them. So I, I contributed some hotels in Dallas, some notes on other stuff, and the debt we bought, and we basically took over that entity. We own 70-something percent of it. And I took over Starwood, what became, it was Hotel Investors Trust, where we're going to call it Starwood Hotels Investors Trust, but you can do the acronym in your mind. And we decided not to do it. <laughs> <laughs> so we changed it to Starwood Lodging and kept the stock symbol hot. And we were $8 million equity, and in three years, we were $20 billion. How did that happen? We went on an acquisition spree. We started using the aggressively using Starwood Capital's people to buy assets. And we started buying individual hotels. And then we started buying. The same time, I bought Weston Hotels privately because it was uh, too leveraged for the public market. It was a $600-odd million deal, which we split with Goldman Sachs. But it was our deal. We just didn't have the money. We put up $100 million, They put up $100 million. It must have been like $800 million. And we borrowed like $600 million. So in 98, it was time to buy Weston and Goldman represented, we wanted to buy it, started lodging. Started, and Goldman was representing because I couldn't be on both sides of the trade. And we struck a deal at $38 a share and, and the stock then rose to 54 And then I happened to see that Steve Bolenbach and Hilton made a hostile bid for ITT Sheridan. And at first I was like, I called Rand Arascog, who just recently passed away and said, I'll be your white knight. You can put... ITT Sheridan into the paired share and it's all over. You'll create all this incredible value. The bank, I think, was Goldman. They were advising them and we were option number two or three. They didn't think I was serious. And Hilton didn't go away. And I was actually playing golf with the late Jimmy Lee up at Wingfoot, playing one of the better rounds of my then life. And I got a call in the 11th hole that Rand Arascog wants to see you. So I drove to New York didn't finish my golf game. And I walk in his office and I'm 35, 36. And Rand is a patrician 60 something. And, and he has like seven secretaries and there's only two people on this floor of the building and there's beautiful art. And he says, the company's yours. And I'm like, excuse me, <laughs> <laughs> if you can hit this price, you can be our white knight. And so the company and we went up against Hilton and they were offering at the end, I think they offered $80 in cash we offered like 83 in stock and cash. I think 84, 54 in stock and 30 in cash. I couldn't do an all cash deal. I didn't have the balance sheet for it. But a $7 billion company, which was Starwood, which had risen to be 5 billion, plus Weston, which was 2 billion, acquired a $14 billion company. And the stock, the shareholders were so loyal to us. And our numbers have been great. The stock went up 75% a year, three years in a row, that the stock rose from 53 when we announced the ITT deal to 60. So the value of the deal went up and Bullenbeck couldn't compete with that. So I went to the St. Regis, pretty famous, and uh, we pled our cases to the shareholders and they, I was expecting them to top our bid right to the last moment, but apparently their board stopped them. And they were, they, they had a low multiple stock and I had a very high multiple stock. Our stock was like 17 times and theirs was like 10. 
So as long as I use the stock, I couldn't lose. Some of our shareholders were kind enough to say that our stock was worth more than money. So I was like, good. And so our stock stayed in the 60s and, and the deal closed. And then all of a sudden I had a $20 billion company on my hands with, I think, $12 billion of debt. And I owned assets in like Egypt and like Addis Ababa. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my God, what happens if they don't pay debt service? Like what happens if we don't have the cash? I kind of tripped into this big company. We had 120,000 employees in 80 countries. I went from a domestic collection of pretty crappy assets to better assets and then fantastic assets. And the idea for me, I was, I owned the best Western El Paso and the old embassy suites in Tempe, Arizona. And I was trading them for the St. Regis and the Daniele and the Gritty Palace. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I'll put a floor under the stock. This will never go down. And then, of course, uh, Marriott, which has now seen us pass them. And obviously, Bill Marriott had been at this for 40 years and I've been at it for three. He decided that this enough is enough. And they're going to get rid of our paired share structure. So he went to Washington. And in the budget reconciliation bill of that year, they threw in a little provider to get rid of the paired shares, like to obliterate their structure. And I'm being naive in everything and not a lifelong supporter of the Republican Party, which Bill Marriott was. I went, I'll go down to Washington. I'll wear sandwich boards. I'll tell everyone everyone should pair. This will get rid of all the conflicts and all the the misalignment of interests because management companies which only own management contracts want you to build so if you don't build they don't get revenue and they don't really care how the asset fares right so you would have wild increases in supply cash flows would crash this way when you glued the management company and the asset together you'd all be in the same bed you would not have the overbuilding that you had historically so i went to washington i met with clinton's budget director and uh, he said you can kill this on the hill and i'm like so I go to the Hill, I meet with under Treasury Secretary, and I say, how'd you even score this? And I said, your numbers are all wrong. I think they said, they came up and said, it would be $10 million to the good. And the assumptions were so ridiculous. I said, that's ridiculous. So I started campaigning with all the senators from all of New England to say, you should let everyone pair. This is not a tax dodge, which they claimed it was. And as we were making significant progress, they introduced the IRS restructuring bill. And they removed our rider and threw it into that bill. And it passed, I think, 102 to zero, whatever the number of centers are. (laughs) And I just got schooled. I got taught a lesson because Bill Marriott's son or daughter is married to Orrin Hatch's son or daughter. So I was dead on arrival. I never got to testify in front of Congress and tell them the committee and tell them that the world should all be paired. So you started with apartments, you moved to hotels, and eventually you built a lending business. I'm curious, how do you think about is kind of flexible, opportunistic investing in real estate. Our job is to allocate capital to the best returns for the least risk. I do that across all the asset classes in real estate. I, I always say bet the jockey, not the horse, right? It's like our job is to jump from asset class to asset class, from apartments to hotels to land, single family homes, student housing. We own you know, a ski resort in Mammoth Mountain. We own golf courses. Anything we can call real estate, we throw in. We even bought airports because we wanted the hangars at the airports. So we look for the best returns, and then you add the fact that we can do it all over the world. We've been all over the world, whether it's Thailand or Japan or Europe. We said the wine-drinking countries, but also the Nordics now in Oslo and Copenhagen and Sweden. So we've invested pretty much all over the world. And we also, at times, we've gotten out of the equity and just done debt. And so in the old days, we'd done a mezzanine fund that we took public that created a company called Starwood Financial, which then changed its name to iStar Financial to avoid confusion with Starwood Hotels and Starwood Capital, the private company. 
So iStar is still around. We spun out the current CEO was who left, Jay Sugarman. He's now the CEO. He's been there for ever. And then actually I redid that in 2009 when there was no debt available. I went back to Wall Street and said, we want to be a lender. We want to raise a blind pool to lend. And I got turned down by every bank except for Deutsche Bank. And they said they'd sticker the deal. So we agreed to go out with $500 million on the cover and try to raise a lending vehicle. It was the second largest IPO of 2009, which is obviously the year after the financial crisis. And it was only passed by Hyatt's IPO in December of that year. And instead of raising $500 million, we raised $900 million. So it was the largest blind pool at the time ever raised on the New York Stock Exchange. And many of our shareholders had charter obligations not to buy an externally advised REIT, and they got them waived. So what basically happened was a lot of the shareholders of Starwood Hotels, decided to, which had done magnificently over the 10-year tenure I was CEO, and it was the best performing large cap hotel company in the world, they just basically said they'd back me again. The market misread that and decided that there was this huge opening. We could have even raised more money, but the banks didn't want us to sweep every dollar. So they then following us, whereas Apollo's won and Blackstone did one and Colony did one and Aries did one. So those actually got harder and harder and harder to do. So uh, the market ended launching more mortgage REITs. But the, again, you know, the Wall Street can't get enough of a good thing, as you've seen in SPAC land. So they kept coming with more mortgage REITs until the market said enough. That company is now the number one performing mortgage rate in the nation. I, I think my numbers might be slightly old, but it's returned 13.4% compounded annually for 11 years. Now its balance sheet is like 22, $25 billion. So as you're looking across the world, across asset classes, and think about risk-reward in assets that are relatively illiquid, how are you assessing when to get in and when to get out? Everything has its time. It's like wine. Well, our funds have 10-year lives, so we have to be cognizant of that. We have two one-year extensions if we want it. Things that we think have a lot of upside, we'll probably keep. Things that we've gotten most of the upside because we finished a renovation, leased the building, we might sell. Generically today, just being relevant today and stay away from history, I mean, today you have one market on fire, one in its associated markets, which is the residential markets, rent, multifamily rentals. We, I think we have 110,000 apartments, something like that, one of the largest owners in the country, of which 40,000, I think, are affordable housing. So that's a business that has no technological risk, really. Nobody can sleep in their computer. It's one part of real estate that isn't going to be affected by most anything. So we made that call a couple of years ago as COVID spread that it would put office into, at best, a yellow category. Hotels were dark red or red because I'd leave dark red for retail, which imploded. And because of that, like everything else, I learned early on that the flow of capital can overwhelm fundamentals. So because those other asset classes, which traditionally would probably be taking 60, 70% of all the money set aside for real estate were shut, apartments and industrial would zoom and the pressure would knock yields down. And that's exactly what happened. So It happened a lot faster than I thought. And then the most recent thing is rents have taken off. They're double-digit rent increases in apartments following like the single-family home rental business, which is another business we started and took public and then merged twice. We're in again, but privately, not publicly. My job is to find spot trends and invest behind them and think about what the opportunities are. It's hard. You're doing a P deal. You're doing a private equity deal and you're buying a company. You probably don't have the multiple compression on your pro forma. You're buying a company that makes a billion dollars and you think you can grow it to two billion in five years. You probably bought it at 
12 times and you're selling it at 12, 13 times. Where you get lucky or hurt in all these leveraged plays is you sell it 14 times or 18 times or you sell it eight times because the world has changed and their prospects and growth prospects have changed. So with investing in real estate, we don't model cap rate compression, but rates have stayed low for so long and there's been so much quantitative easing around the world. There's so much weight of money in the world is so staggering that it's looking for safe yield and real estate's a proxy for that. So I pay attention to what we own and what's doing well, what's not doing well. That influences additional acquisitions. You have some overlying themes. And of course, you look for busted things, things that have the wrong capital stack. We're agnostic. We don't care where we invest. We just approved a deal in Paris this morning. And then we're bidding on an apartment portfolio in Florida. And they're going into different vehicles, but they're similar things. And then looking at a take private of a public hotel company. We got a lot of variety of things. And we also have added a new vehicle to our arsenal, which is this non-traded REIT, which is raising a lot of money monthly from retail investors. And that can look for lower returning real estate with pretty good current yield. So that's less exotic. We sell when we feel we've gotten most of the juice out of it, but we were dead wrong about some of the apartments we sold early on because we picked the weaker ones, sold them to pay down capital. And of course, cap rates dropped Yields dropped 200 basis points or multiples increased probably 10 times. So at the time, COVID hadn't happened and it wasn't that obvious. So I want to go through a tour of some of the assets today, particularly post-COVID. Before that, I'm really curious about signaling effects. So you've had so much success. And I would suspect that the market thinks when you go to sell something that you think you know, most of the juice is that. How does that play out in terms of transacting on the back end? I think it's the same thing with P shops selling to one another. It's interesting. We've had running debates about, for example, our multifamily assets. My team's feeling is not to renovate all the units, to let the next guy have the opportunity. And they think it's reflected in the purchase price. Like they'll buy down the cap rate, the yield, because they have this upside of renovating the rest of the assets. We kind of prove to them that it works, doing 20% of the units, and leave 80% of it for them. I can't say I'm on board with that. I would like to do more than we do, but we've had this constant debate and I've won in a couple of cases. So we'll see if I'm right as we go to sell these assets, because there's also a group of buyers like your home who want everything perfect. They just want to yield and they don't want to spend any money. I want to do any work. So there's both. So I think the market, and it's true from lying from Blackstone or other firms. Again, we can't predict cap rates. I mean, you can, you can have a view, but that's rarely in our investment memos. So if I thought cap rates were compressing, I might think Starwood picked a bad time to sell. Or I'm selling for the wrong reasons, the end of a fun life or something like that. I don't think it's so bad that people think like they can't make money if they buy from us. They may have like a tenant. We're selling an office building, let's say, because the tenant is expiring in three years. And they just have a different view of the risk than we do. And maybe they know something we don't know. So I don't think it's not been a problem. We sold a zillion dollars worth of stuff. We're coming out of this strange time with COVID. Normally, you look at assets, there's cyclicality, things get cheap, they look distressed. And I'd love to just get through a tour of the world, maybe. We'll just start in the US. We'll start with an overlay because the US is now just like it's politically two countries. It's two countries for investors because the blue states and the red states, and maybe you have some purple states like Florida and mostly Texas, but let's call those red states for now. The blue states where populism has gained a footing and there seems to be tremendous pressure on wealth and union strength and crime and 
a less welcoming business environment. We've tilted for the last seven, eight years, we've tilted the portfolio to investing more in the red states, which are actually growing. It shouldn't shock people if they step back and looked at the country that it's the Texases and the Floridas and the Tennessees that are doing great. And people are getting up and moving. They're moving their families and they're going to these states which have a right to work and they have a welcoming business. And you know, the mayor of Miami put up a a billboard in San Francisco, like, come to us. And literally, how can we help you succeed, which is the antithesis of the environment in, in New York City. So we don't own anything in San Francisco or New York. We own a couple of hotels in New York. We don't own no office, no residential anymore. And we've been active in, in these markets. We got out years ago, w- way before COVID. COVID only made it all worse. And so with that as a backdrop, you go to like, where did you invest? The multis were the green asset classes, green light, the multis and industrial industrial actually never really burped as people move to ordering stuff online logistics distribution channels distribution centers all that stuff was full and got fuller and rents started to really take off apartments actually didn't have a great covid because uh, you weren't allowed to kick people who weren't paying rent out of your buildings and unlike the some of the political nonsense around this some of these people had jobs they just found out their neighbor wasn't paying and so they don't have to pay. We as a nation, I think we talked to 40 REITs when we, and again, we were like the second largest REIT, but we weren't public. We all decided not to raise rents during COVID, even though we could. And even though single family home rental rents were going up five to 10%. So now we're all paying catch up, which is a little bit what you're seeing, that the rents are going up and catching up for what the period of time we couldn't push rents. And now finally the government restricted or lifted the no eviction policies, although some of the cities, again, in the blue states, are putting them back in, which again, I think is overkill. We have hardship cases for people if they lose their job. But as you know, there's nine and a half million jobs open in the United States. So there's also a situation where people aren't paying rent, collecting the excess unemployment, collecting their stimulus checks, and not working, because why bother uh, when you can work from home or not work at all and earn more money than you did when you were working. So the government has to figure that out. But in general, apartments are doing well everywhere. And now they're following the housing market, which is, if, if you had told me that housing prices would explode during the pandemic, I would have probably laughed. But what happened was, unlike the 07, 08 crash, consumers' pocketbooks were rich and interest rates were zero. So the stock market rose, home prices have risen, savings rates rose, expenses dropped people weren't traveling they weren't doing the, they weren't commuting they weren't doing anything they used to do and they've got a lot of trillion dollar gants from the government so it's coursing through the economy and that's translating itself into people it's funny i've never seen price increases like you're seeing now this market is not sensitive to price it's not like you induce different behavior by lowering your price everyone's feeling pretty good about things you see it in retail sales Apartments are easy. So apartments now probably pass logistics as the best asset class at the moment. Then you have office. Office is the yellow asset class. Like whether it's here or Berlin, nobody's quite sure the pace of people returning to work. Now in Korea, in Saudi, in Japan, they're back in the office. Like nothing's changed. But because it's sort of become a a woke political issue in the United States, the tech firms in particular have told their people they could work from home. And so the worst office market in the United States is San Francisco, where 30% of the space is vacant or trying to be subleased, which is staggering. And then places like New York, I don't think people, the financial firms seem to want their people back. 
is a little bit different than a tech firm. The lawyers want their people back. But it's not. In general, New York was more traumatized by this than the red states. And so I'm guessing at the moment, 25 or 30 percent occupancy in office. My whole firm, is, as you can see, is in the office. So the real estate guys are back in because they have to show leadership. And I know like Goldman is in, parts of J.P. Morgan are in, parts of Morgan Stanley are in. But office has been also a city-by-city phenomenon. We're the third largest owner of office today in Austin, Texas. And that market is booming. And companies are coming looking for space. And I think that's seeing beyond the pandemic and they need their campuses. Same is true of Miami. I built a building in Miami and leased the whole thing during COVID. If you had 2 million square feet in downtown Miami, you could lease the whole thing in a minute. There's such demand, there's no supply. There's no leasing because there's no office buildings available to occupy. So sometimes the data isn't what it seems. Like you can't occupy space that doesn't exist. And you're seeing a lot of smaller companies move to Florida and bring some of their employees with them. Their issue is now school systems. But the same would be true in Orlando, West Palm Beach, Jacksonville. Those are all strong markets. And then Nashville, Raleigh, Research Triangle Park. And then you have subsets of office like Life Sciences, which are having their own major boom. And that's been an incredible market. And then maybe you'd call data centers a subset of office too. And that has its own little boom. And both of those businesses, you watch supply. And one of the things that we worry about always is supply. So we talk about three green lights in real estate. And where are we with them, even though we're so late in the cycle? One is positive leverage, meaning the cost of debt is lower than the yield on the property. It used to be negative in the 70s and 80s, and now it's positive. So it's still positive. We're buying apartments at less than four yields, but we're financing them at 2%. So that's positive leverage. So the cash on cash return, let's say, is six. You can't get six in junk. Junk bonds are four three and three quarters. Corporate debt is like one and a half. So six for apartments, you're like, scratch your head. That seems like a pretty good deal. And that's why the apartment markets are moving. And also residential yields in Europe were always lower than the US. So we're kind of converging to their yields. So what are the other two green lights? Well, industrial is green. And I would say data centers are are light green. Demand is robust, but rents aren't really moving because there's so much supply being added. Offices are They're red, yellow, and green. They're in all three categories. Europe is more returned to the office. I think before the Delta variant, they were sort of, depends where you were. London was zero, but Berlin was 65, 70. Some of the other markets were higher. All of these places have the Delta variant put a crink in the whole recovery or the slant of the recovery. And then the red going to yellow, going to green is hotels. And even in that market, if you had a resort hotel during the pandemic and it was open, you did really well. We had to have a record year during the pandemic at the one hotel in Miami that we built and 20% higher cash flow this year than last year. So it's been incredible. On the other hand, if you have a big group house in Manhattan, you're lucky if you can had for a while, if you were open, which you weren't, then you were opened and you had 6% occupancy. Without the businesses here and no foreign tourists, there was no reason to own a hotel in New York. Actually, it's been shocking to me that the New York recovery has been as good as it has in hotels just because domestic travelers have money and they're traveling. So you had a reasonably decent summer in New York without any foreign travel. And then you have the roadside hotels that don't really require foreign travel. And it just requires business to get back into business. And so the courtyards in small towns in Iowa, Illinois, Mississippi, Texas, They've come back. They're not all the way back because business travel isn't all the way back, but they're 85, 90% of the way back. And hotels will turn green at some point. There's still supply coming that was stuck in the pipeline that was finishing now. So again, you have to go in market by market and almost zip code by zip code. And then retail, 
is really very difficult. And people look at streets like Bleecker Street in New York or Madison Avenue, and they, they may see a lot of empty stores, but what they don't see is whether the guy's paying you with rent. Or he might be physically there, but he holds all the cards, and he tells the landlord, I'm not paying, and what can the landlord do? Kick him out and get who? So tenants are so busy working on their online strategy and building out their e-commerce platforms and product selection, new product innovations, and the markets are rewarding them for their online sales because the margins on surface look better. They're not incrementally opening new stores, and there are exceptions to that, but the whole retail landscape is going to need to change further because of the advent of cloud kitchens. So one of the big users of street-level retail has always been restaurants. But it's an awful lot nicer for the restaurant to be in some garage somewhere with no customers to deal with and have DoorDash deliver whatever it is they make with just a chef. And they don't need waiters and waitresses and space and expensive space at grade and other stuff. So we'll see how this all evolves. But the U.S. is experiencing a lot harder hit from retail than Europe is. England more so than the continent. And the continent's done a much better job. And culturally, they have not adapted Amazon as the Darth Vader of retail. It's fundamentally destroying mom and dad retail across the country. And it's one of my pet peeves because they're allowed to sell product retail-wise for less than the cost of, they're losing four or five billion a year in retail, which they subsidize with AWS. But if you think about it, they were offering free shipping. I was the beneficiary of that. I got a, a bicycle pump delivered to my house in Miami, same day delivery. It was like a $24 pump. And he drove it in a car to my house for free. How much money are they losing? So no mom and dad can do that, right? There isn't a mom and dad shop on earth that can compete with that. And the only reason Amazon could do that is they got away with it because of AWS. That funded the losses. And they were literally wiping out mom and dad and the small retailers across the country doing it. And obviously, we all joined the Prime account. They charge us $75. Now, I think it's 100 They'll go to 500 when there's nothing left but Amazon in this country. In Europe, they're not letting Amazon do that. You go to... High street retail, they're there. They're shopping with the local guy. They're protecting their culture and their heritage much more than Americans who are always time-constrained and go for the quickie. So you go to your son's dorm at college and you see the future death of retail. 75,000 boxes piled as high as the ceiling because nobody has time to go shopping anymore. Just not exist in Europe. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember. 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance. Absolutely free at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. What are you seeing in Asia, China in particular? Well, we have investors from China. We've avoided going to China as investors, except in one area, in hotels. 
We have a joint venture with a Chinese account. Fundamentally, if you're like me and you're sort of a Graham Dodd value investor in, in assets and real estate in particular, it's difficult when you can't see supply and you can't see demand. The data doesn't really exist. And somewhere up in the Politburo, they're deciding that they're going to build a new town. And they're not telling you about it. And they're going to move 2 million people to that town. And I'm not sure where they're coming from. They're doing the 100-year plan and the 50-year plan. And our investors have five-year cycles. And I don't think they really give a hoot if your IRR is a 13 or a 3. So the state's going to win. And therefore, I kind of worry about adverse selection, us getting the worst deals, the locals getting the better deals. And ultimately, you know, it's evolved into now it's possible there'll be other issues for American investors in property. So we have not invested in China for a while. One of our clients, of course, it was formed to invest outside of China. So but even there, they've now asked us if we would do things with them in China. And we're looking in categories. But one of the lessons I've learned over the last couple of years, 30 years, is we don't put enough political risk into our Performance, Like a 20 in India is not the same thing as a 20 in the United States. There's so many things that can go wrong. And the rule of law is so less developed. And the same would be true of China. An 18 in China, 18 here. I'll do the 18 here 100 times out of 100. Because stuff happens. And in India, we built Citibank's world headquarters. It wasn't at the time. It was a spec office building with a local family. The Hirandani is one of the wealthiest families in Mumbai. And Vornado, one of the most successful office REITs in the United States. And we had bought the land in an auction and we paid a fortune for it. And in the U.S., probably the building, the land for a building is going to be 20% of the cost of the building, 25. In India, it's 65, 75. So the land purchase was everything. The building is pretty cheap to build at the end of the day. So we build this building. We paid $200 million for the land site. And the government, the central government, slapped a lien against the local province, which apparently had not forwarded the real estate taxes or the tax due when they collected $200 million from us. That lien immediately primed the mortgage, meaning the first mortgage we had had to be paid off. It now had a lien ahead of it. They put a lien on our property. And I'm like, you don't put this in your pro forma. This has never happened in the United States. <laughs> like it's never <laughs> happened. The seller didn't pay his taxes and they put a lien on your asset. And it's a state government against the federal government. So then we had organized in India, you have to do things offshore for tax reasons. And we, we made ourselves feel better by having a put in, I think it was Mauritius, was the, and the put to the partner. And when we came time to exercise the put, we thought we had it all legally papered. He's like, go ahead, it'll take you 10 years. I'm like, oh, great, this is great. Thank you, this is really helpful. So I don't think Americans put enough risk premium to these emerging markets and often you have the currencies to deal with, too, which are very, very hard to hedge. What opportunities are you seeing that you think other people aren't yet? I can't tell you that on a broadcast. That, like, <laughs> that would be awful. I'll tell you what, what I think is interesting. I, I still think Brazil is more interesting than a lot of times clients and capital races to places. When we went to India, our clients were, you need to be in India. And they went to Brazil. And we were very careful. We did just two things of scale. And one of them is now the second biggest logistics platform. It's a public company. We've gotten walloped on the currency, but made a lot of money in local. So I think Brazil is actually a lot of capital left. I actually believe Brazil will be interesting for real estate players. And it's a big country, a couple hundred million people, an emerging middle class. 
You got to watch the government's about to turn over again. So the governments are super important. It's more like, what am I worried about that other people aren't worried about, as opposed to like, where do I see the opportunities? I, you know, I think the political issues in the country and around the world are going to have a bigger effect on investing than they probably have in the last 20 years. I think the change of government in Germany probably is overlooked, is important. And Merkel has been the longest lasting European leader. I think that you have to watch that. You have to be careful. The Democrats now, because they have all power, they'll probably lose conventional wisdom because they lose the House in what, like 14 months? They're going to race to do some crazy stuff. It could be you would need a sweep again by the Republicans in 24 to undo it, just as they're going to try to undo some of what Trump did. So, I mean, it's not good for the country to swing tax policies and swing policies. And this rhetoric around the rich not paying taxes, I mean, there's really usually one way where rich people pay less taxes. They do the things the government incented them to do. They buy solar tax credits. They buy, they buy credits for wind farms. They do what the government was trying to incent capital to do, and they do it because it drives their tax rate down. And it's what the government was trying to do. So if a guy making $40 billion isn't paying any taxes and he doesn't have all these shelters, they should lock him up. But if the guy's following the tax policies and incentives of the tax plan, which theoretically the politicians put in place because they want to induce certain things, then he's obviously a hero, not a, a villain. So I think the rhetoric in the markets is so bad. And I asked myself, am I just getting older? Does it seem bad because I'm older? And I don't really think so, because I remember people telling me that populism would never win in the United States. We were a nation of Horatio Alger stories. And in fact, populism is becoming pretty popular. And now the concept of People aren't choosing to work, so we're going to continue to write stimulus checks to them and blame it on COVID. We can't hire. I was at the, our hotel in Brooklyn last night, and we have 220 people on staff, and we're missing 40 people. And we're running a full hotel, and we can't run the hotel. We can't do room service. Some of our, we're having job fairs, and we've raised rates $10 an hour, and people won't come out and take a job. And obviously, there's something wrong with the incentives put into place to keep them home. And I'm not being, I just believe the country needs its workers. And then, okay, if Americans don't want to work, then let's have some immigrants. And we won't let them in either at any spectrum. You can't get the avocado pickers and you can't get the scientists who want to come. We train them at our universities and then they run home because we won't let them stay. So then they go home to compete with us and companies that are competing with our American companies. We must be followed serious, stupid pills. So I can't even get like our own people from London that want to work here. I can't get visas for them. There's such easy wins and such silly policies that are definitely hurting the United States right now and will affect capital flows. The worst thing that will happen is we lose the dollar status, which China would probably pretty happily do. And then definitely going to be a bigger economy than ours pretty soon. We're headed semi-backwards, sadly. So on top of all the real estate you're doing around the world, I know for a long time you've had a pretty interesting family office that is truly a single family office and that it's you. <laughs> so you've done some SPACs through that, a bunch of other stuff. I'm curious kind of how you think about your own assets outside of the real estate. I'm long real estate, if you will. I've been very successful investing outside. I have a lot of investments and I don't have as much money with hedge funds. I have some directs. I do a lot of tech investing, directs, funds, and so it's good for me because it keeps me on top of trends and things that are going on. And we've started our own prop tech group recently here. We've made probably a dozen investments. 
I've met a lot of people and I see a lot of stuff and I enjoy it. So I always looked at that I've done pretty well outside of the firm and I'd like to usually keep that quiet, but you'll see my name now in, in deals when they ask if I will put my name on the round. We'll be doing more prop tech yeah, and we're raising a small fund for that. We can incubate things in our portfolio and test drive them. And then if they work, we should scale them in our portfolio. And also, you know, it'd be smart for us to have warrants or investments in the companies we're scaling. So we're a little behind, but we're moving rapidly in that space. And personally, you know, the SPACs, I ran a company. I'm not a real estate guy. I consider real estate my habit, but I know marketing. I know finance. I know branding. I've done a lot of consumer stuff too, involved with like dominoes in China and all kinds of crazy stuff, actually. And a lot of the stuff is being restaurant chain, small restaurant startups, companies like Away, which is luggage, or Parachute, which is linens, and a whole bunch of companies. And then, of course, the Palantirs and that stuff where I met Peter Thiel decades ago. And then you have to add in crypto, which I've gotten involved in a little bit as I try to understand what's impact will be on the world. And there's no question that the tokenization of finance and other things is going to change the world the way the internet changed the world. So you have to watch that stuff. And I'm watching, I'm observing, and I'm learning. I kind of figured out, you know, again, it's like most people would say, it's probably 3% of my net worth. And if it goes to zero, I'm okay. But I also don't believe what the U.S. government's doing is healthy for paper currencies. So my great hedge is my Bitcoin position, right? Because it's like, it's a dumb coin or a dumb thing can't be used for much, but it's certainly as good as gold and arguably slightly better because it's an infinite supply and easily accessible. So it's not like I'd put my whole balance sheet in it, but would I have a position in it? Yeah. Should I change to Ethereum? Probably. <laughs> Cardano or Solana. So I just try to stay educated. It makes me a better investor and try to see what's going on. And if you understand these companies, I was talking to one guy. He told me he's moving to a town. He's going to take over every building in that town. He's going to build a new epicenter for his crypto world. And I'll go meet with him and learn more about it. But I know he's gotten a billion dollars or more from SoftBank. And maybe you could pull it out. Maybe there's an opportunity to play in real estate there. So you got to watch. You got to watch everything. And it makes me better at what I do. When I was in my last job 30 years ago, my boss said to me, you know, real estate behaves differently than other asset classes. Real estate is linked to other asset classes. What happens in real estate, yields on property are totally related to interest rates. And that's totally related to the corporate bond market. And equities have a big impact on our tenants and who can expand and who can't expand. So in retail, when their stocks are 50 cents, they ain't growing. You know, <laughs> They're done expanding. They can't add 100 stores if they wanted to. They have no access to capital. So don't think you're going to get all these guys coming back to build stores when Dick's Sporting Goods and Lululemon and Chipotle are trading at 17,000 times multiples. All those other guys are not. The guys in the mall, they're all trading in penny stocks that they haven't gone bankrupt yet. So you need to pay attention to the capital markets, even if you're just a little old real estate player. What's your quick take on SPACs? They started out as an interesting and a pretty good deal for the sponsor, frankly, alternative for IPOs. And then Wall Street went haywire, which they always do. And, and if you could breathe, you could raise a SPAC. And frankly, they criminals, crooks, frauds. And if Goldman wouldn't take you out, then some other firm would take you out. It was too lucrative for the sponsor and incredibly lucrative for the banks. When could you get raised money for a convicted felon and earn 5% for it? And everyone joined the fray. Everyone could do a SPAC and the, even some of the small firms. And 
So then with a lot of undisciplined capital and a lot of people who weren't in this for you can make a career with one trade. You can make a lot of money. So a lot of people went public with no discipline, no investment experience, no ability to underwrite a company and just wanted to go do the next spec. So they do a deal as fast as they could and the markets were wide open. And the arbitrage was so compelling that as soon as the hedge funds figured out that they couldn't lose money in a low interest rate environment and they had an option on all these deals, they thought it was an interesting product. The opportunity cost wasn't that high for them because they get their money back and, and interest on it. So it wasn't that big a deal. So a lot of dumb deals were done. I think there's 428 SPACs looking for deals today. The outcome of this will be as the two-year anniversary of those SPACs births comes around, they will get desperate and they will start cutting their promotes 25, 50, 75% just so they don't lose the sponsor equity capital they put up. So it's going to be a bloodbath on the sponsor side, which will make the vehicle incredibly compelling for an IPO incredibly compelling it'll be cheaper than an ipo so you will see a lot of these deals get done and they'll probably be better quality companies that bought at better prices but as long as there's 428 of them out there you're still going to see a lot of companies overpriced and the market will find a level the most fascinating thing about the spac market is how many companies are going public with very thin floats and so the short interest in these companies which everyone knows is a scam or completely mispriced the short interest grows and then there are squeezes and the stocks go to the moon and beyond and the sponsor can get out. So the short squeezers, the Reddit accounts, I mean, it's crazy what's going on. It's crazy. There are worthless companies. There are companies trading in multi-billion dollar market caps. And I look at all these companies that we looked at, we passed and they went public with someone else and some of them trade. In February, everything went up in March. Everyone thought they were a genius, you know? Like the EV companies are the most obvious. I mean, a lot of the stuff, I mean, I shorted Lordstown. How much worse of a public offering can you make? They front run the trade. They lied about their orders. <laughs> they made up the car. It was a fraud. The model they showed the street was not active. They, they don't know how to do anything. They hired General Motors to build the car. It's crazy. Fisker, which is a failed company, goes public and people like the name. I mean, but then there's healthcare companies that went public and Interesting enough, if the company gets enough cash and they deploy it really smartly, they may be able to get themselves out of some of these holes. So it's all different. There'll be gems in the SPAC world and there'll be catastrophes in the SPAC world. And there are the same in the IPO world. The hit ratio will be higher in IPOs than it is in SPACs. So I'm going to ask you a couple of closing questions. Before I do that, you're typically traveling all over the world visiting properties. What was COVID like for you? I actually enjoyed COVID. I had both of my sons with me in Miami and I never get to work with my kids. So that was kind of fun. And we did a couple of deals in the middle of the chaos. We did a rescue package on TPG's mortgage rate, TRTX. And he said, how could you do this? My son who's just entered Harvard Business School. And I was explaining to him that at these values where our attachment points were for the loans we were giving, we couldn't really lose money unless the United States ceased to exist. So we won out great. The stock rebounded. We made a ton of money. He got to see a real live contrarian deal in the middle of the heat. We bailed out this company. So that was kind of fun. And I decided that the only place there was real distress in real estate during COVID was the public markets, which overreacted and everyone thought the world was ending privately. It couldn't happen. So stocks went so cheap. We raised a $700 million fund from our clients that would still answer the phone. That's up 83%. So it's good. And we just, in five names, we've really focused on five names and it's funny. A couple of them we've made, three of them we've made takeover offers on, which turned out to be like 
that was sort of injured. They got so cheap and now we just want to take them out. But we try to be agile. And COVID was also great because I'm good in crises. It focuses your organizations. You focus. Like I went through our public company, Star Property Trust. I mean, it was like, okay, here's the dike. Where's the weaknesses in the dike? Have we got four plans to fill the hole if it's a hole? And everyone focuses. Everyone went to their battle stations. We knew at the beginning it could be survival or death. We didn't know which one was going to happen. We were, we were going to be in our seats and man the forts. And and then we had to, as lenders in that company, we had to restructure some deals. And the team did an amazing job. And across the firm, we, I like crises because you really just you know to deal with all the problems you deal with in success. <laughs> <laughs> and then also people were nice. They were friendly. And yeah, I traveled probably before anyone else traveled. I went to Key West to look at a hotel that was going to be sold in the middle of the crisis. We made an offer and then the government bailed them out with those, those crazy, whatever those PPP loans were. And they got into trouble with that. And then they pulled the asset off the market. I mean, our stock went from 26 to eight. Now it's back at 26. So it's kind of hard in the middle of the heat. So I stepped up and bought stock at like 10, I think, in the public company or nine. I owned a lot of it, so I didn't buy. It's also a one-way door for a CEO because if you ever sell it, people are like, what's going on? There must be something <laughs> wrong. So I didn't back up the truck. But I told people on Kramer, he said, Kramer said that stock was yielding 13. He's like, well, it's 13. It's not safe. And I said, I told him publicly, it's safe. And they don't understand the company, but we can pay the dividends. So, and I knew we could. So it was it was good. It's always good. When popular opinion goes one way, you can find another. Those were the great opportunities. When we started our single family rental business, a very notable grave dancer in real estate said, this is not a business. You can't do this. This is like, how can you buy houses? They're apartment buildings. And it's so interesting. You can, there's 300 unit apartment building. You just walk up and down. It's very easy to maintain. You can't maintain single family homes that are disparate and all. Turned out they had the same margins as Maltese. The tenants are usually higher quality, so you have less defaults because it's a family, not a kid. And with tech, you organize your maintenance calls in a route that didn't really tax you. So, And now that company, Invitation Homes, is one of the best performing REITs on the stock exchange and I think is an $25, $30 billion market cap. So turn into a business. And I like it when that happens. When the Wall Street Journal ran some stories about the overbuilding the apartment market, that's great because in the individual markets, there was no construction. And we'd go in and buy those markets because everyone, oh, it's going to be overbuilt. So I love when there's bad information out there. <laughs> it's like, go ahead. You believe that. All right, Barry, let me ask you a couple questions to let you go. What's your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? Oh, I golf now. And I wish I was a professional tennis player. So I played some college tennis. But I golf. And golf is both personal and business. You know, I've met a lot of interesting people playing golf. It's all true. Whatever they said. I never played golf until I was like 30, 32. So it's a great way to spend time. What's your most important daily habit? Working out, probably. I work out seven to eight in the morning, try to keep in shape. Really, for me, it's mental clarity and it's my time out. So I just feel better during the day. I have stressful days and I don't really take stress with me. I can sort of roll with it pretty good. But I think if I don't work out, I get pretty lethargic and I don't feel good for the day. What's your biggest pet peeve? Assuming things. People who assume stuff and they read something and think it's you know, I used to laugh when I, the Wall Street Journal ran a story about me and I was on the front page and they told me I had four kids. I have three kids. <laughs> so I went, I went home and I said to my wife, is there something you should tell me? Don't believe everything you read. And when, it's funny when they write about a deal we're doing and they get the market cap wrong. You know, it's like, guys, like, I know the share count's wrong. Go look at that. It's not the right share count. So 
I think the key in investing is actually doing your own work. Then you triangulate other people's opinions and stuff, but do your own work. And and I, the biggest mistakes, like you often find when you find Andreas and Horowitz and Sequoia, they're all in this deal. I don't have to do any work. Do your own work. You may have the dumbest partner at Sequoia, right? You don't know who did that deal. Maybe they fired the guy yesterday. <laughs> you know, so like make your own opinion. The problem with success is it breeds hubris. And I think successful people, my goal is to keep my intellectual humility all the time. Which two people have had the biggest impact on your professional life? For good or bad, Neil Bloom, who was my boss at JMB, where I went after business school, taught me a lot of things to do and a lot of things not to do. I think I developed my own way of doing deals and structure and style from things I adopted and didn't adopt from people I worked for. And there was another fellow at that firm, a guy named Bruce Duncan, who uh, was really my direct boss. And he had a style I think was very disarming. I enjoyed his approach to doing investments and deals. Uh, And then there was another fellow that came to Harvard Business School that made a couple of speeches. And I I remember them like they were yesterday. He said, be careful where you set your goals because you may achieve them. And then he said, and I thought that was, hmm, that's interesting. And I've come to understand what that means, actually, and how it applies to business and even your life. And then he said, the key to success in life is to find the freight trains in your life and get on them instead of in front of them. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, gosh. And I was broke in business school. I was negative 8,000 bucks. So what are the freight trains in my life? And that turned out to be getting in the way of institutional capital, like the pot of institutional capital grow and grow and grow from trillions to tens of trillions. And, and that was created the Fidelities of Putnam's, the Black Rocks. I got my tiny little share of that. We're a $100 billion asset manager today, so it's not terrible. So who is that? Bill Salmon was the entrepreneurial finance professor at Harvard, and it was also a fellow named Don McNamara. He also said, uh, luck is when preparation meets opportunity. So I love all those things. They're my credo. And then the last one, the most important thing I ever read was Perseverance is Genius in Disguise, which was a fortune cookie. Uh, <laughs> and I, that's me. I stay with it. And if it's complicated, I'm all in. What's the biggest mistake you've made and what have you learned from it? On paper, the worst deal you did is the best deal you did. Like for me, it was this, when I bought this company, Ransworth, I was the head guy to make the decision in England for my old employer. And a very wealthy guy who was on the Forbes 400 made a catastrophic mistake. And we were following the Reichmans at the time, the richest people in the world, into the British property markets, and they got it wrong. And we thought, because they were doing it, we should do it. And There were some things that were wrong from the start. I didn't object to them, like negative leverage. There was massive negative leverage in that trade. So I think also probably the hardest thing for me in running a public company and private company has been dealing with people. And somebody once told me that keeping bad apples, you're not helping those people. You're hurting your organization. And they're setting a bad example. And the fact that they survive in your company is pulling down the performance of your whole company. But I always get caught in the personal side of that. You know, they have two kids. They've been here 17 years. They're trying hard. They just don't have the talent set. You don't know how to tell them that. You kind of push them, keep pushing them into more and more relevant corners, but you should let them go. It's funny because I had a reputation of being difficult because I was such a young CEO at Starved Hotels. People would blame me that I'm difficult to work for. But when I found the right people, they were incredibly loyal and good. But getting to the right people, I took too long. And I think in general, when you're running a firm, any firm, you're the coach. It's like football coach. I always wondered about this. You know, the guy's loyal to his wide receiver until there's a better wide receiver, right? And then it's his (laughs) job 
to get rid of his wide receiver and go recruit the really awesome guy and do so without everyone thinking he's an asshole, right? But he does it to the extreme. They traded Brady, which was probably a bad move. But that's what corporate executives have to do. And that's hard. I find that hard. I find that really hard. Advice is cheap. It's easy to give. And then forcing people to build depth into their organizations. They say you should hire people better than you. Many people don't want to do that. They just feel like they'll be obsolete and kicked out the door. And I think figuring out how to do that in companies, when you can do that, you've built an incredible company. What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? My mom is quite gregarious. She's very social, and I've basically inherited that gene. I like people. I like travel. I like talking to people. Uh, my father was tougher than nails and strict, and uh, he was European. But he, since he survived the war, I always said to myself, my worst day was better than his best day for 10 years of his life. So I think that knocked me down, and I get back up. I've never thought, I didn't have a plan for Star Wars to be this big. It just happened, and I kept going. There was no plan I'm going to be a $100 billion asset manager. I just took advantages of opportunities as they arose and didn't ever think I couldn't do it. I look back and taking over ITT when I was 38, was, I must have been out of my mind. And, I mean, like, and we, we actually had negotiated. I actually was too embarrassed to ask for it, but I was going up in the elevator to the room at the St. Regis, and we had a $240 million breakup fee we negotiated. So if Hilton had won, we would have gotten $240 million. I was 38 years old. That would have like changed my whole life back then. And I, it never occurred to me to get the breakup fee. And then I took over the company. I'm like, I should have taken over the breakup fee. <laughs> so much easier. <laughs> I can't even keep a straight face. So I wouldn't have been able to ask for that breakup fee. But I sent in one of my young lieutenants and he has no problem asking for it. I, they said, yes, I would have laughed. I'm not a good poker player. I wear my heart on my sleeve. Barry, last one. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life? Oh, that's really tough. Everyone's obvious to everyone. Money doesn't buy happiness. It just buys choice. I did want to have a pool and a tennis court because my neighbors did and I didn't have growing up. And then I kept going. Your life turns into like, this is a sport for me. Investing and being successful and being good at what I do. I don't know how to do anything consciously half-assed. So you're all in, you're all out. I'm not really good in between. I think success comes with all kinds of benefits and all kinds of issues and it's not all roses and everyone has the one thing someone said to me once is every, the world is a very fair place and i'm like oh really everyone gets 24 hours in a day and how you choose to use them is up to you so i look at that in my life at this point and say how am i doing what i should be doing with my 24 hours and i like to make a bigger difference and i have a big foundation i give a lot of money away but i would like to spend a little more time in making being the change you want to be see the change you want to be. And I hope my kids will help me do that. So they'll make me cry now. <laughs> but that's one of the benefits of being successful is giving away the money and trying to do it in a smart way. Barry, thanks so much for taking the time. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found a nugget or two to take away and apply in your investing and your life. If you'd like what you heard, please tell a friend and maybe even write a review on iTunes. You'll help others discover the show. And I thank you for it. Have a good one and see you next time.